0: Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Rollo and Slappy show. Today is February 25th, 2019. I am Rollo McFlugel and with me is Slappy Jones 2 and we are both from McFlugel.com. Show notes page for this episode is McFlugel.com 133 where you will be able to find our sponsor LibertyMugs.com but also check out ways to catch up with the guest that we have this week for you. Uh, Up next is a recording with Prof. CJ from the Dangerous History podcast. If you're not familiar with CJ and his podcast, I highly recommend that you do become familiar with it because he goes through and does some lectures uh, about history, obviously, and does it with a libertarian angle. So you can really appreciate the analysis he does. So... Without any further delay, let's get right into it. Um, I'm going to hand it off to our recording where Slappy does our introduction.
1: So with us, we have Prof. CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast. Welcome to the Rollin' Slappy
2: Show. Hey, thanks very much for having me.
1: So uh, Prof. CJ just put together, was it 28 hours of, I, I shouldn't say just put together, but over the last couple of years put together about 28 hours of civil war, podcasting <laughs> is that about right or a little longer than that
2: yeah yeah well well not counting the bonus episodes it's a, it's a, i think a little over 28 hours and then a few more hours um counting some bonus episodes i did for for supporters of the show and uh yeah i, I finished up the last episode about a month ago um and the whole thing from first episode to last episode was about two years and really I worked on it longer than that because I started the research sure. for for a bunch of months before I even recorded the first one so now, yeah
1: now in your you know you're for a living you're a you're a, his, a historian a, a history professor correct
2: yeah yeah i'm i'm kind of like the the history professor equivalent of like a non commissioned officer is how i sometimes put it gotcha. for people that don't get academia because i don't have a phd i just have a masters degree for for various reasons, I, I didn't go on to a PhD, even though I was already kind of like accepted into the pre, uh, into the PhD program where I got my master's. Um, and then, but I do I do have a full time tenured position at basically um, sort of like a community college. That's fantastic. Which, yeah, which is like the best you can do basically within formal academia if you just have a master's degree. It's kind of about as high as you can go because um, it's a, it's a guild system really in a lot of ways.
1: <laughs> wow, uh, that's pretty incredible. I mean, I. I think your style on the podcast. So most of our listeners are going to be libertarian and caps, voluntarists, whatever they want to call themselves. Um, I loved your style and how you're not, I, I mean, I, you know, I'll let you call yourself what you want to call yourself, but I know you're in the same, same kind of voluntarist anarchist uh, ideology. You're very, even keeled as you tell the story from both sides you don't throw in that angry and cap anti-government always you know every now and then i guess but i love your style and how you can just tell the story and like like we were saying before the show Rollo, i mean we just learn a ton about history by listening to your podcast more than i've learned in any of my college classes i went to a pretty good college in the in the midwest um your podcasts are way more captivating than any of the courses I've taken. Do you have people, students who have listened to your podcast before they took your class?
2: Um, I don't know if I've had any listen to them before or not, because no one's ever told me that I've, I've had a few who I, I don't, I don't talk about my podcast at work. Okay. Um, I, I kind of, I just kind of leave it separate. Like when I'm at work, I'm just, you know, I'm doing that. Um, and obviously there's, there's some overlap in terms of like, some of the topics I cover at work and, and the basic kind of perspective that I come from. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I it, it, Right now, I mean, maybe I, maybe I developed this skill and this preference from growing up with divorced parents and, you know, alternating between two very, very different households, but mm-hmm. I've, I've always been kind of a compartmentalizer. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want my students to be really like thinking about, about, I don't know, judging me or, or perceiving me based on my podcast, if that makes any sense. So I don't, I don't bring it up or advertise it to my students, but I, I've had a few who have discovered it. I guess because maybe I, some topic I mentioned in class, maybe they Googled it and they happened to find a podcast I did on it a long time ago or something. So, you know, I, I've had a handful that, that have kind of, you know, said something to me about it.
0: Yeah, gotcha. I mean, I I can understand that attitude because Absolutely. I mean, and I both have pseudonyms that we. <laughs> so it's it's good to keep things separate sometimes.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't I don't like hide my my viewpoint on things when I'm teaching, but I also don't want to make it like overwhelmingly the centerpiece of everything, you know. Sure. Um I, I still want to be able to just sort of like teach a history class. Um without all, all the the baggage that might come from. I mean I mean some of my students might disagree. Some of my students might say that like I'm I'm annoyingly radically anti-authority all the time, but um I'm 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 a little bit more I don't know what the right word would be. Maybe maybe play it a little bit closer to the vest. Mm-hmm in, right. in class, not entirely. I mean, I, I actually I have I have students in my classes read some stuff from Rothbard um, on various topics. Mm. And, uh, you know, when we cover early 20th century kind of World War One era, um, I have my students read and discuss War as a Racket by Stanley Butler. So, I mean, I still do a fair amount of surprisingly radical stuff in in my classes, but it's still I'm, I'm not as just wide open as as on the podcast do you find your students
1: are in i know you talked about this on a recent episode or or maybe it was a a talk you were doing somewhere but your students in class how do they compare to your podcast listeners do you get i i you know because when i'm listening to your podcast like i said earlier i'm like blown away i'm like this is great stuff this is well researched this is very clear he's giving a great story i want to hear more um how how do you find that with your students versus with your podcast listeners?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And and you're right. Um, you're probably thinking about the the talk that I gave at Harvard last fall right? where I contrasted voluntary versus involuntary or at least less voluntary education. And I basically said, you know, well, while students in a college class, it's not as involuntary of a situation as when they're in K through 12 mm-hmm. in the public school system. It's still not entirely voluntary for a variety of reasons, especially – in the classes I teach, which are basically all intro classes because of the kind of school that I'm at. So, you know, the vast majority of students who are in my class are just taking it because there's a gen ed requirement that they're punching out, you know, that was how
1: I, I was in college, to be honest with you. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's how most people's classes are for like the first two years of college um, until they're eventually taking stuff in, in their major, mm-hmm. you know, entirely. So it's like, yeah, they voluntarily chose to go to college and chose to go to this college. And technically speaking, they voluntarily chose to take this class, but kind of not. They were, they were sort of coerced into it on some level. right? Um, And so it changes the dynamic, especially when you combine that with the fact that in a conventional classroom setting, you're, you're grading people, you're, you know, Mm -hmm. evaluating people's work. And then that immediately creates an adversarial relationship on some level. And then a a significant percentage of the students, whether they realize it consciously or not, are going to be resentful on some level that they have to be there and have to be doing these assignments and their, you know, their, their morale and whatever, they're going to be closed off. And they're, I like to think that if I'm, I'm doing a good job that I'll get some of the students who come in with that, with that negative attitude to, to kind of, you know, have some buying and come over to my side. And, and I know I I know this happens because students will tell me like at the end of the semester, you know, um, and I'll see the change in some students where they'll start off looking at me uh, like I owe them money. And then <laughs> after a few weeks, they start to like, you know, despite their best efforts, actually like learn something and, and yeah. find it interesting. Um, so but it's it's different with podcasts, though, because it's 100 percent voluntary, you know, and everybody's just I mean, someone doesn't want to listen to me uh, for any reason. They can just not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's funny, the classroom it's it's almost like it's an Oxford style debate <laughs>
1: where it's yeah.
2: your
0: hope, you know, do you have people liking you more at the end or more people liking you than you had in the beginning or less and that's that's how you determine the
2: Yeah, and it's kind of the best you can do. There's a certain percentage that, you know, despite the the kind of Hollywood portrayals of great teachers and whatever, the the realistic fact is there's a certain percentage that like you're not going to get to you're not going to reach you're not going to change their attitude and some of them might still be able to pass just by you know doing the minimum necessary things well enough to get a passing grade some of them won't but but you know if you're in this kind of job you just sort of have to make your your peace with the mm-hmm. idea that there's a certain percentage kind of calvinistic in a way um interestingly by the way I, I just had a conversation uh yesterday with brett venant mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and um sucks. yeah 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 and and it's it's going to be um an episode of his podcast and i'm also going to release it as an episode of my podcast too but it was basically him him kind of interviewing me about like some of the problems and issues and so on that have been increasing at my teaching job hmm. and and so we we get into some other aspects of of this sort of thing you know we talk we talk a bit about the institutional um problems but then also about the students and and the generational thing because i've been doing this now for like 12 years so that's long enough time Uh, to see significant uh, changes and trends in terms of generations you know i started off teaching students who were mostly born in like 89 90 and now my students like the majority of them have not lived a day in the 20th century that's insane (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's the difference. They don't remember 9-11. No, no. And it's also the difference between people who, you know, the students I had when I started, they were, you know, it was right as smartphones were coming in and, and, and right as social media was starting to be invented. And so they had already like done a lot of their growing up and developing in a world where if you had a cell phone, it was a flip phone. You know, and and there's not all these things that are that are zombifying your brain and, and sucking out your attention span and your you know, all, all that stuff. And there's a there's a noticeable difference. I mean, I still have students right now who are brilliant and, and, and very, you know, awake and alive and bright and, and curious and all that. But the percentage I really think is lower than it was when I started and the percentage of students who just seem like, you know, I'm sorry, but on some level, almost like brain dead zombies, mm-hmm. um, that percentage has gone up. So, yeah. And of course, it's it's night and day um, comparing that to comparing the, the interaction and relationship with the podcast audience who, you know, so, they're all positive. They're all appreciative. They're all really like listening to what I'm saying carefully. And yeah. there's no brains involved. There's no coercion involved. Right. It's something you want to do. You want to go out and learn it. So I'm happy to
1: sit and listen for to listen to you talk for two hours straight, um, you know. But that is something that, of course, I don't want to go off the rails too much. But I have young kids, and it's something that's on my mind all the time. I am do not want my kids to be iPod zombies, needing YouTube in front of them all day, not caring about anything else. And it's it's very challenging to do in the world today. But um, let's get into your Civil War series a little bit, Rallo. I know you had a couple questions.
0: Yeah, just to start out, what what kind of inspired you to? To spend all this time researching and, and putting this all together because as we were saying in the beginning it it was no no small task
1: yeah, this isn't something you just threw together and recorded
0: and man talk about talk about attention spans like you were just saying, but it take two years to to got all this through is uh I mean it's I don't think people I know I didn't realize until I start really started listening to the to the, the podcast series uh, didn't appreciate what this really is.
1: There's things you talk about that you you won't hear anywhere else. You Mm -hmm. won't hear in a college level (laughs) history course.
2: Yeah. I mean, I really tried to find as many of those things as I could, you know, things that I hadn't encountered before I started doing this. And so the civil war is a topic I've studied in some depth, a couple other times in my life. I started getting really interested in history when I was like a teenager, basically. And, you know, I kind of went through a little period there where, where I read a lot of Civil War stuff and I, you know, watched a bunch of documentaries on it and whatever. And I mostly just kind of got the standard version of things, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, still meant I knew more about it than most people walking right. around. <laughs> um, And then I studied it again when I was in college as an undergraduate student. I actually I wanted to take a class, a Civil War class on it in grad school, but it ended up not working with my my schedule and all that kind of stuff. But, but I studied it fairly deeply in a, in a civil war class, you know, whole, whole semester just on the civil war uh, when I was an undergraduate student. So that was kind of like the second time that I had studied it. And then, you know, in, in a typical U S history class, I teach it, but I teach it like a, an overview, you know, cause you have to cover it in just like a week or two. Right. So like, there's no way you can, you can delve into it like I did with the podcast. So, um, I I decided to do this to do the series number one, because it's arguably like the single biggest looming historical event in American history in a lot of ways. And so, you know, just it's important, but also I was looking at it from the standpoint of like my, my audience, you know, my audience, I, I have listeners from all over the world, but you know, overwhelming majority are are from the united states so you know my thinking was like all right well probably a lot of them will be really interested in this because it's it's the most popular uh biggest historical topic in american history i mean if you if you go to an actual brick and mortar bookstore and you go to the history section usually the biggest like single topic you'll find in an american bookstore is the civil war Mm -hmm. um you know usually even beats the world war ii and revolutionary war and all that stuff so you know my thinking was like all right let me go ahead and just sort of like it's it's sort of like the idea of i guess i'm gonna fight the biggest guy in the room (laughs) Um, because no matter what happens like i i I swung for the fences sort of thing you know um i I might have not done it or at least done it when i did if i had realized how big it was gonna get because (laughs) one one problem that I run into with a lot of the topics that I've covered on the show mm-hmm. is that a lot of times I I have trouble finding lots of good sources because if I'm looking into something kind of obscure, like, you know, I'm looking into some, you know, true conspiracy of something horrible the CIA did or whatever mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of times there's relatively little, little coverage out there and you have to really kind of look all over the place and dig and, and be creative. But with the civil war, it's the complete opposite problem with the civil war. It's like, there's way too many books and articles out there and you're drinking from a fire hose when you're researching it. And, you know, I, I'd read one book and then then I'd find like eight more books in the footnotes of that one that I had to go look up. And um, it ended up just, just really taking on a life of its own and becoming huge, way bigger than I ever would have guessed. I mean, I think when I started, I had something more in mind of what I did with the American revolution a few years ago when my podcast was still pretty new and most of my episodes were still pretty short. My production value was crappier um and you know that i think i i think i knocked out the revolutionary war in like six or seven episodes and like i don't think any of them were over two hours and
1: right. it's um, still a big project
2: yeah yeah and, I, I mean, and i'm still small proud small of thing. it yeah i'm still proud of it for like what it was you know in terms of my development as a podcaster like i think it was the best i could do at that time but you know that's probably what i ha- what i had more in the back of my mind like yeah i'm gonna do something kind of like that you know for the civil war and then Next thing you know, you know, it's a, I'm a year into it and like 15 hours into it. I'm like, oh, I don't know when this is going to end.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so given that, because I, I've been listening to the, the, the series and there's, there's been a lot of stuff that surprised me. And I think one of the things that you're doing, that you're doing a good job in there is, is critiquing a lot of misnomers about, about the Civil War. Uh, because, like you said, it, this is the most popular thing in history of the United States, but there's a lot of things that it's just kind of common knowledge that people don't get right. So was there anything that really surprised you or that you learned that you weren't expecting going through all this research?
2: Um, there – I mean there were there were a lot of like specific details and, and particular things that I just hadn't known before because I'd never gone into this much depth. But In in terms of something that sort of changed my view on things versus what it was at the beginning of this, I probably on some level, I was never in my mind actively like pro-Confederate, but I think I had a greater degree of sympathy for the Confederates before I got working on this series. and it's it's not that you know, the, the problem i think that that most people have when they just study the civil war or when they write a book about the civil war or whatever it is is whether they intend to or not most people end up uh being being sorted into one side or the other of of the dichotomy where they feel like you have to either be pro union or pro confederate like you have to pick a team and i ended up you know as as someone who who eventually evolved towards being an individualist anarchist in my political beliefs, you kind of naturally end up with, when you learn a lot of the real history of the United States government and realizing how imperial it is and all that, you, you sort of automatically end up having a, a negative predisposition to the U.S. government. And But then the thing that that happens sometimes is you get funneled into another side of the dichotomy, which is, you may end up in a place where you assume, even if it's just unconsciously, that everyone who is an enemy or a victim of the U.S. government is automatically virtuous. Now, it's entirely possible for both sides in a conflict to not be all that great. It's entirely possible. And and if you talk to anyone who's Maybe been like a, a street cop in a really rough neighborhood or who's been a bouncer at some, at some tough dive bars or whatever. They'll tell you that fights are almost never between a good guy and a bad guy in real life. Like they're usually between. You know, a couple of pretty bad guys. Now, maybe you can get out your micrometer and say that one is a little bit worse or a little more to blame in one particular fight. But, you know, rarely do you have like a, a pure, a pure bad guy fighting a, a pure good guy. And and I've come to believe that that's usually true of wars as well, that like there's very rarely like a clear, complete good guy on one side of a of a conflict and so i probably had a little more sympathy to the confederacy simply because i already had an understanding of a lot of the the negative aspects of lincoln and his war policies and the total war strategy and all these sorts of things and and that naturally makes you be be sympathetic now you know it's one thing to be sympathetic to just the average southern civilian who's just like wrong place wrong time caught in the middle of this but it's a different thing, I think, entirely to, to like say that, well, because, because I now realize that Lincoln, um, you know, had some, some sinister aspects to what he was doing and that the Union wasn't, you know, pure good, that that must mean that the Confederates were great. And that must mean like they, everything they did was, was good and justified and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, th- this is something I really get into a lot. I, I, I don't know if, if either of you have, yet listen to the last episode in the series, but I really dig into this on the last episode on the series, this idea that, that many Confederate apologists still hang on to that. Like, Oh, it wasn't really uh, Southern secession. Wasn't really about slavery at all. And I, I never quite bought that. I always thought that was way overstating it, but I was, I was probably a little bit more sympathetic to that claim before the series. And then I actually bothered to spend hours and hours and hours reading primary source documents from leading Southerners uh, from just before and in the early stages of the war. And doing that, I was like completely bulldozed by their own words because – they were not hiding at all the fact that their primary motivation in seceding was to protect and extend even the institution of chattel slavery. They flat out say so. They were not, at the time, they had no reason to think that this was wrong or that this made them look bad. They believed they were on the side of righteousness. So, I mean, it just one after the other, after the other, it's overwhelming and unanimous, all leading Southerners, uh, political leaders, um, you know, kind of intellectual and media leaders and even theological leaders. I have I have documents from like, you know, the, the top Southern uh, ministers of the main denominations of the South, you know, Presbyterianism and so forth, where they are saying flat out, we are seceding because of slavery. And I don't know how anyone could then say that. That this isn't that that it's that it's not true that the South was seceding primarily to protect slavery when we have just mountains of documents of leading Southerners saying that. And at the same time, I couldn't find any significant documents from, from before or during the war where leading Southerners said the opposite. I I couldn't find anything where leading Southerners were saying, Oh, we're really not seceding about slavery. It's about something else, you know, the tariff or whatever it is. Uh, That's not there. The only time when you start to find documents from leading Southerners saying it wasn't really about slavery that I've come across anyway, and there's always the possibility I've missed something, but it's after the fact, it's after the war has been lost, and the Southerners are trying to save face and they're trying to, you know, romanticize their cause and all that. That now that it's all over, you find some some ex-Confederates going, well, it wasn't really about slavery, it was really about these other issues or whatever. But, you know, to me that's that's very dishonest. It's the same, same sort of move as as Lincoln himself did, which, which is to change what, what a war is supposedly for either during it or after it, you know, Lincoln started off the war for the first half insisting it's not about freeing the slaves. And then halfway through, he changes his tune on that. Um, Well, I mean, how much is it as bad or even worse to change what a war was supposedly about after it's all over? I mean, that, that to me is even more dishonest in a way. So that, that was the biggest change in my own thinking was I became less sympathetic to the confederates that's interesting yeah but 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 without without that that didn't make me though then come down in favor of the union and their policies my my conclusion is basically like i i don't think either of them are good i think they're both motivated mostly by like the worst motivations they could have had given the situation
1: right i i i totally agree with that, and I think it's a great way to look at history that if there's people on two sides willing to kill each other, they probably both think they're right. And from an individualist anarchist standpoint, most times they're probably, in my opinion, both wrong. Um, it doesn't have to be a cartoon where there's a good guy and a bad guy. They could both be bad. One could be worse than the other, and I think that goes pretty much with any conflict all over the world going world war one world war two um civil war you name it israel palestine both sides believe they're they're right um i think i think that's generally how that would go um so that's interesting because i think uh, a lot of anarchists myself included are so much sympathetic to the south in that they wanted to secede it's their right to secede they should secede but that doesn't make them the good guy
2: yeah and and to me you you still have to ask the question why specifically then did they want to secede you know because nobody in the south was saying we want to secede because we think we have the right to secede (laughs) you know everyone was saying we want to secession is a means it's not an end in itself now if they were saying um You know, we don't really care about slavery. We're happy to phase it out once we get our independence as soon as possible. None of them were saying that, by the way. But if they were saying that, and they were explicitly saying, you know, we're seceding because uh, primarily we want to—I don't know—have lower taxes and 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 get out of certain onerous um, Republican-supported regulations and policies and things. You know, that would be a very different story. But you know, I mean, I'm, I'm generally tend to be sympathetic towards someone who's trying to secede or someone who's trying to accomplish some sort of decentralization but on some level it has to matter why they're doing it right so you know if someone is seceding from from an oppressive regime because they want to make their new regime in their area even more oppressive i'm not going to support it just because it's secession and decentralization because you know smaller smaller governmental units can still be oppressive too i mean You know, there are, it's true that a lot of the freer countries in the world tend to be smaller, but there are plenty of exceptions. I mean, there are plenty of relatively small countries that are like horrific totalitarian nightmares. So, yeah, I mean, the the idea that that decentralization is always automatically an unmitigated good uh, is is something I I just can't get behind.
0: Yeah, that that brings up another good point that I wanted to ask you about, and that's about Some of the economic models that were in the Confederacy, because like you were saying that we tend to think, oh, secession, decentralization are good and it brings makes more local government. But a lot of the things that they were doing were a lot of it were were fascist policies and sometimes outright socialism.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Hummel, who is um, uh, some sort of a, a free market anarchist type type guy as far as i know and who wrote a great book on the civil war called emancipating slaves and enslaving freemen he actually describes the confederate wartime economic mobilization policies as war socialism and i don't think he's wrong um, if anything in, in just economic terms the confederacy's war mobilization was much more socialistic than the unions the union in, in part because they already had a lot more industry and and a lot more just, just wealth in general, they were able to rely on more like the mercantilist contractor model of, you know, the, the government simply contracting to buy war supplies and things from from private uh, industry, you know, kind of the typical American way of, of doing war most of the time. The Confederacy, the Confederate government opted for for outright socialism to a large extent where, I mean, they had flat out like government, owned and run factories making things for the war effort and their policies on things like taxation and uh, monetary inflation and all this were like actually way more statist in a lot of cases than what the union was doing. So, you know, some, some libertarians will criticize the union war effort uh, for its, it's statism and all that, you know, oh, they had conscription and they had, you know, th- these various economic measures to mobilize for the war. And like, I'm, I'm all with criticizing those things on those grounds. But I, I think it's, I don't know, either, either laziness or dishonesty to then turn a blind eye to the fact that the Confederacy did a lot of the same stuff. And in, in some regards, they did worse. Like, for example, the Confederacy did, um, not only, not only more direct like socialism to produce war materials, but, they did way more money printing. And as a result, during the war, the Union had some high inflation, but the South had hyperinflation and um, the, the Confederacy's own bad economic policies, you know, just added fuel to the fire of the South being wrecked. I mean, certainly, you know, the armies of Sherman and Sheridan and so forth were wrecking the physical infrastructure of the South. But they the Confederacy's own wartime economic policies were just not helping. In terms of the average person,
0: yeah, that, I, I, it's funny. Right, right as you brought up money printing, I re- literally wrote those two words down. <laughs> but uh, so, from what I remember, I think I remember hearing this from your your podcast was that the Confederacy would would print this this fiat and use it to purchase stuff from people when they didn't just outright own things, and then you weren't allowed to use that to pay taxes or something.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact details of that offhand, but yeah, they basically eventually what happened was the the currency started to lose value so badly, you know, basically hyperinflation, that the Confederate government their own currency that they were they were forcing people to accept in return for essentially, essentially it was force forced sale, you know, confiscation with with compensation of, of this crappy money that wasn't worth anything. Um, w- when they would, you know, take take war materials or food or whatever from people to to supply the army, and but the they printed so much of the money that the money became essentially worthless, and then the Confederacy didn't didn't they didn't want to take their own money in taxes, and so they they eventually uh, started resorting to policies. Of taxation in kind, meaning like if you were a farmer, they would they would just assess you know a percentage of your crop, uh, you know, or or whatever it was that you you made or you produced or you grew. So, which, which is interesting because it's something, uh, if I remember right, you find it in some of the most messed up phases of the Roman Empire when the Romans through through debasing their currency, um, you know, they didn't have paper money yet in the Roman era, but they they had monetary inflation through making coins with like way less silver in them and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the Romans did hyperinflation just by running down the silver content of the denarius to almost nothing. And the Romans did the same thing when their own, you know, coins became practically worthless. They no longer wanted to accept them as, as payment of taxes and they started just confiscating people's grain or whatever as taxes. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Confederates were, were, were very statist. Um, and, and at least some of them had imperialist dreams too. That's, this is another thing that Confederate apologists often don't, don't mention that you can find plenty of Confederate leaders, um, at various points on the historical record saying, oh, one thing we're going to do after we get our independence is we're going to go take over Cuba and we're going to go, you know, invade South America and we're going to make it all one big slave based plantation empire kind of thing. and. I mean, it wasn't just a few of them. A fair number of Confederate leaders had these sorts of, of imperial dreams. Now, had they won their independence, how many of those things would they have attempted and how many of those things would have been successful? Who knows? But, you know, I, I think that the southern the southern states probably could have taken Cuba for sure and certainly could have, you know, um, they they were much weaker and smaller than the Union in material terms. But they were they were much wealthier and more powerful than a lot of these Latin American countries. And do you think
1: had the the Confederacy won, um, this is something we can't tell, but
2: do you think slavery would have lasted much longer? I think it would have lasted at least a couple more decades. I think it's unlikely that slavery makes it into the 20th century. But I think there's good reason to believe that if the South had gotten its independence, they would have had no reason or desire to phase it out quickly once the the war was over and independence was won um i i think i think somewhere probably 1880s or 1890s it would have been phased out in some way you know and you can look at the other countries in the western hemisphere that phased it out you know brazil cuba all the other latin american and caribbean countries for for potential alternatives of how it might have gone down um, but yeah, it it would have lasted longer. I mean, sometimes you hear absurd things where people are like, "Well, you know, if the South had won the war, we'd they'd still have slavery today." It's like I I don't see that flying. I mean, all you all you got to do is look at look at how much the the world turned on South Africa eventually over apartheid, right? And and apartheid, as bad as it was, still wasn't outright chattel slavery. So you know, the notion that the South would have been able to endure in the face of world opinion turning against slavery for a century or more, keeping slavery, that just to me seems unrealistic. Like how long would it have really taken for all the world's, you know, major economic powers to to boycott and sanction the South? And, you know, just simply, I mean, public opinion does matter. You know, I mean, it, it would be very hard for um, a regime today to, like, Reinstitute chattel slavery or something like that just because like the whole world would go like what the hell are you doing um so but but then you you know you sometimes will run into confederate apologists who go too far the other way and they're like well you know the south would have gotten rid of slavery like pretty much right away once they got their independence and my response to that is what the hell's your, your evidence for this none of them were saying this and in fact, they were saying that they were they were fighting for their independence primarily to protect and extend slavery. So why would they immediately do a 180 on that once they won the conflict that was supposedly of all, of all else to protect slavery?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when you first said, when listening through your the, the podcast series, that you first said that you thought that slavery could have gone into the, the 1890s or so, it, it surprised me. I thought that that was a little bit long just without ever really thinking too hard about it. But then you think about what us politicians were saying in the beginning of the 20th century about places like the philippines and they considered those people barely human so when when you had that attitude in the country that said that oh slavery is is an atrocity and terrible but still had these other things and yeah it's you're not really that far removed i would say from from just completely uh completely disregarding someone's humanity to to put them into shadow slavery.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and plus I think some of some of these people who think it would have gone away more quickly if the South got its independence, they may be looking at some of the countries in Latin America that um kept slavery past the American Civil War, like like Brazil and Cuba, and and phased it out in later decades and go, look, see, even by then even those countries got rid of slavery. But I think it's entirely possible that The fact that the the United States abolished slavery throughout all of its states and territories in 1865 probably helped speed up those other countries getting rid of slavery. So in other words, had the South kept its massive slave population, which at the time of the Civil War, the South had more slaves numerically in it than any other slave society in the Western Hemisphere. So had the South gotten its independence, not only do I think they would have held on to slavery for at least a few more decades, but some of these other places may not have had as much pressure on them to phase out slavery either because the single biggest slave uh, uh region in the western hemisphere would have kept it longer
0: and that makes sense because one of the arguments i heard about uh if the south had won or at least gained their independence that there would have been some pressure from some european countries like france and and england to for trading reasons to to undo slavery but um I mean they ha- I guess they hadn't <laughs> up to that point though.
2: Yeah, although it, it they cared enough that I I think the single biggest reason the British chose not to recognize the Confederacy and intervene in the war was the slave question. Mm-hmm. Um the fact that the British Empire had abolished slavery in the 1830s and the British government had really kind of committed itself to opposing slavery. They they had some sympathy for the south for other reasons, but you know, you have to ask the question, why did they never ultimately pull the trigger? on, on recognizing and helping the Confederacy. Um, and more than anything else, I think it's, it's the slave question. I mean, they they realized that it would make them look like a bunch of hypocrites as these, you know, cause they had been kind of self-righteous and, you know, maybe deservedly so that they had actually done some good uh, against slavery, the British empire from the 1830s onward. And they realized they, that, you know, they would lose all that credibility if they then were, were helping out the Confederacy. And to me, it's another, re- another reason why I don't take too seriously this idea that the war wasn't really about, or sorry, that to be more precise, that Southern secession wasn't really motivated by slavery. If that's the case, then why didn't they even do like a token half-assed anti-slavery program of some sort during the war? Because had they done something like that, it probably would have removed the inhibitions on the part of the British towards helping them. So just from, from like a, a, a tactical or even strategic perspective, it would have benefited the South to make some serious anti-slavery moves during the war from the perspective of of European recognition and support, and they didn't do it. And so you have to ask yourself why, even though it would have helped them strategically in the war, why did they not do anything against slavery during the war until like literally the last few days of the war?
0: Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. So kind of still on this a political topic you mentioned at one point in the podcast about and correct me if i if i if i misinterpreted or misunderstood but kind of this was the beginning the civil war era was the beginning of kind of the politics becoming a religion among people in the country um cause that, that that really kind of I found that very interesting. If that was the case, and trying to kind of piece all this together, especially with the ridiculous political climate we have now, um, it's it's all kind of kind of has to come from somewhere, and it would make sense that when now all of a sudden you have a physical divide between the country where you're fighting fighting this war, that it 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 could create some some real animosity and, and people digging in their heels over or certain ideals.
2: Yeah. And th- there's that. And then there's just the, the pure like slaughter and suffering caused by the war. And people often tend to, you know, turn towards things like religion to cope with those, those experiences. Um, it's just massive bloodshed. I mean, it's, it's still the single largest body count for Americans of any war. And When you look at it in proportion to what the country's population was at the time, it's just tremendous. I mean, um, I think the second to last episode in the series, I I went through some numbers and I don't remember them offhand. But basically, in proportion to what the population of the United States was at the time, we're talking about a war in which like millions and millions and millions of people would have died in order for it to be proportional today. Um, And there's never been a single war in which Americans Officially, have lost more than more than a million people, and most most American wars are far less bloody than that for the American side. So, yeah, I mean, it it definitely that, and then the desire of leaders on both sides to keep up morale and to uh, mobilize the population and make them okay with, you know, either volunteering to go fight or, or or acquiescing to being conscripted, and to go along with all these, you know, taxes and other other sacrifices and economic mobilizations that that people turn towards religious motifs and really melding religion with statism and the the term that's usually used in kind of the social sciences to describe this is civil religion and it was something i kind of knew about and sort of had a had a basic grasp of like you know statism nationalism patriotism all these sorts of things Basically tend to be to be religious a lot of the time in in their their form and their methods, but I had never really like dug into it. And then uh, somewhere in my research early on, I got referred to this book. That is another Civil War book that I highly recommend. It's called Upon the Upon the Altar of the Nation, and it's by an historian named Harry Stout. He's from. um One of the Ivy League universities, I think Harvard. And it's a history of the Civil War that's mostly focused on this idea of uh, civil religion. And and he makes the argument that it it was really the foundation of the American civil religion, that there were aspects of it that existed before this war. But that this war and all that went along with it and all the sacrifices and all the death and destruction and whatever, and then the desire of the leaders to keep people mobilized and all that – Led to the creation of this this kind of you know cultish patriotism, and that the both sides the union and the confederacy cultivated civil religion in their for for their side, and so you know the union created something that became kind of the mainstream American civil religion, and the confederacy created this like southern aspect of it that, that deifies Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and, you know, has this idea that, that they're these noble noble martyrs fighting for Christian civilization and um you know all all the the mindset that goes beyond all of the 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 monuments and the the theatrics and the worshipfulness and so forth of all these rituals and things. Um so I and I actually did a did an episode, it was either right around when I started doing the civil war episodes, or maybe even right before it, I did an episode that was just on this idea of the American civil religion. Um, And I, and I looked at not only the stout book, but I looked at, there's a, an article from the mid 20th century from a sociologist named Robert Bella, that he was the first intellectual I'm aware of to really kind of like start to describe the American civil religion and what it was and how it was, you know, Religious. And he, he approached it in a more neutral sort of a fashion than I would, but it was still very much worth reading. Um, and it really kind of made me think things through. And this was right around the time the 2016 election was about to happen. And so... I also I think in that episode made the point that like elections are part of the civil religion. They're these this ritual where we think like something magical and transformative is happening and everybody has their their dogmas and, you know, sort of like Catholics on Ash Wednesday go to church and get the little ashes on their forehead. Well, the voters go in and they get their I voted sticker, you know, and then they (laughs) they, they walk around feeling good about themselves, you know, um, and and isn't this isn't this all kind of creepy at the end of the day? that, that there's this cultiness, you know, that we built the temple to Abraham Lincoln and that we, you know, have all these, have all these rituals and I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it was an important part of the war and I, and I never quite understood the magnitude of the civil war's role in bringing that about before reading that book by Harry Stout. But uh, yeah, it's, I I highly recommend that book for anyone interested in this sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And I, it, this brings up so- I was thinking about this i think uh, yesterday um, about the Civil War religion and why a lot of i guess more Southerners seem to feel more of a uh, have, have that i don't know the word but but the the connection to the confederacy or whatever and and I'm from you know Pennsylvania from the north, but my my ancestors came off the boat only a hundred years ago. So, the whole like Yankee versus rebel thing just never either way, never really mattered to me because I just never had that that connection, that tradition with it. So um I can see that being being an issue for people that that do have the bloodlines that go back that that these these feelings and these stories would get passed down from generations so
2: yeah and and the South has this very, very schizophrenic patriotism and civil religion. Um, probably ever since like maybe World War One or World War II at the latest, but maybe World War one, if not even a little bit earlier, it might have even started during the Spanish-American War. Um, during the Spanish-American War, a lot of Southerners saw it and, and Northerners did too as like a way for North and South to kind of come back together and, and be friends again like, hey, let's go team up to go fight the Spanish and then go fight the Filipinos and then go fight the Germans you know um and 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 this was like a deliberate, sort of cultivation on the part of a lot of Northern and Southern leaders to do this. And it began the process of gradually the the South becoming like super patriotic for like the stars and stripes and the U.S. government and all these things, you know, for the government of the government that sicked Sherman and Sheridan on them and, and, and you know, turned uh, the Shenandoah Valley and parts of Georgia and South Carolina into deserts which is unthinkable if you look at it from the perspective of like the immediate aftermath of the war you you would have a hard time imagining most southerners being like rah 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 patriotic for team america but man they got it done over the course of the 20th century to where now you know southern white males are like disproportionately likely to be in the u.s military and this has been true for a long time and they're often some of the most like gung-ho kind of simple minded Toby Keith, nationalist, patriotic type of people, you know, these flag waving uh NASCAR fans who, you know, just rah, rah, rah for team America. And yet at the same time, they still have their Confederate civil religion as like a sub genre of their worldview where, you know, yeah, team America. If you, if you don't love America, get out, you know, and, and yet still a lot of them will also have a, have a Confederate flag somewhere. And you know, they'll, they'll deify Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and, and say nice things about the Confederacy. And it's just completely, it just incoherently contradictory, you know, how someone who claims to be like a proud Confederate, you know, uh, supporter or whatever could also simultaneously be so gung ho to support and cheerlead for and fight for the, the, the same government that, you know, crushed the south. It makes no sense, but it's something you actually see in other empires too. Um one case I'm fam- I'm familiar with is how the Scottish were conquered into Great Britain by the English. And then once the British Empire started becoming a global concern, the Scottish were very happy to Like, become hardcore nationalists for the British Empire and its power and greatness and expansion. And yet, at the same time, they still had a distinct sense of Scottishness and a distinct sense of Scottish patriotism simultaneously alongside the sense of British patriotism and British Empire, you know, patriotism. So... It, it, it's contradictory, but it's, it's, it happens where one group gets conquered into the empire and then becomes like rabid partisans of that empire in conquering other people who are further away and more alien and different and whatever.
0: Do you think that has anything to do with wanting to be on the winning side and and just feeling better about yourself when when you feel like you're making progress and winning?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think, you know, that, that point makes me kind of think about an aspect of this I hadn't thought about before, which is take the example of a Southerner today who's simultaneously super patriotic for the U.S. and also a Confederate, you know, sympathizer or apologist or whatever. That person, even though it is totally contradictory, looked at objectively, that person gets to simultaneously feel like, I'm great because I'm part of the powerfulest team that's always winning. And they can also still on some level feel like, and I'm a victim. I was the underdog. My yeah. side was the underdog in the civil war. So it's like, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You're the underdog and you're the the big, tough, powerful winner that everyone is scared of. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think that, that, I think that sums it up pretty well. And we see it all the time. If you think about it, um, just tying it into today it's it's both sides love to say that the media is against them and at the same time oh look we're winning <laughs> it's like yeah. well, what what is it
2: yeah yeah i mean there's power in both things there's power there's power in feeling like a dominant winner and there's a different kind of power in feeling that you're you know a scrappy underdog david facing goliath sort of a thing
0: yeah they wouldn't make all these underdog movies if the underdog's always lost at the end
2: yeah exactly and no one wants to go watch a movie where you know, Goliath just like wins consistently through the whole movie, and that's that's the movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> no one would no one would want to see that. Yeah.
0: Um. So you you, you kind of touched on this, uh, talking about uh the religious aspect, but but about listening to your po- like it's been on. Unco- there's been times where I felt uncomfortable listening when you go through the accounts of the aftermath of these battles. I mean, thousands of people. Uh, our casualties and just it's it's just horrific hearing hearing about like what these people w- were walking through and and saw and and sometimes lying among it it's can you talk about that a little bit i don't even know how to how to talk about it other than it's just it it was upsetting
2: to hear. Yeah 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 and and i wanted it to be like i wanted to include those those little vignettes those little you know excerpts from like soldiers letters and diaries where they're vividly describing what this actually was like to to experience right because that was before
0: before like the industrial revolution and with that came a lot of advancements in medicine so we're it's like we're we're a fairly large step behind uh you know what they would do with medical attention
2: oh yeah yeah i mean the the medical situation in the war was just absolutely a nightmare it's just it's just like a horror movie or something and it it's something that people often lose in popular depictions of of say the civil war where you get this kind of like cleaned up version like oh then this regiment maneuvered this way and this regiment marched up this hill and you know, and and you get some abstract figures of like, oh, this many men were killed and this many wounded, but but to get that that visceral sense of like, what is it like to have, what does it look like, what does it smell like, that kind of thing, to have like literally thousands of of bodies just piled up, you know, and 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 neither side was very well prepared, not only for for medical stuff, but even for basic things like. How do you how do you take care of of disposing of and burying and so forth that many bodies like how many grave diggers do you need? How what what units and organization do you need to take care of that in a in a timely fashion? Right. And what's different about this war than any war since is this war was the last war. Where it's happening actually on American soil on in in a major way you know every other war america has fought since then has had little or no direct impact on the american home territory and so to americans today other than you know maybe a veteran who's like been on the front lines in in afghanistan or something like that to the vast majority of americans today war is not something they really have any direct sense of like how How disgusting it is, how ugly it is, how dehumanizing it is, how horrific it is, because we don't have we we go create bodies piled up in faraway parts of the world that most Americans will never see. We don't experience mountains of corpses and mountains of amputated limbs and all this here, you know, and just think about what happens in the aftermath of a big bloody battle. What happens when uh, vultures and wild hogs and other animals start to scavenge the battlefield? And there's no way that you can like bury these thousands of corpses in a timely fashion, right? And and you you end up with you know scavenging wild animals uh, eating bodies and sometimes eating eating soldiers who were badly wounded but still alive. Um, Another thing is that very often, and there was a drought. In several areas of the South during the war, which made things worse in a number of ways, and and one of the ways it made things worse was very often, uh, as a result of a big Civil War battle, you would end up with with crazy brush fires because if you're shooting off you know black powder muskets and and artillery and everything like that and firing hot lead everywhere in a place that's and a lot of the biggest battles take place in the summer, of course, and a lot of these areas were experiencing drought at the time, so it was relatively common for there to be like massive wildfires during and after battles. And so, and again, you've got piles of bodies and they're not all dead yet. And there are some nightmare stories of in the aftermath of certain, certain battles where like, uh, you know, the, the the fires are taking guys who aren't even dead yet, but who are just, you know, badly wounded and laying on the ground. And um, there was the one episode I did. Um, maybe a, a year and a half ago now called the, the grunt's eye perspective. When I really tried to zero in on these sorts of things of like, what was it like from the perspective of the average rank and file soldier in terms of, of, of the misery, the pain and the filth too, because you think about a civil war army, we're talking tens of thousands of men. Uh, it's basically like, a, like a, a city of guys marching around And they don't have decent infrastructure and think about like what happens when 60,000 men stop to camp and they all start, you know, uh, pissing and shitting in the same Creek or in the same area. And then, oh, that's also the same place they're getting their drinking water from that kind of like, you know, you don't normally think about that if you don't try to look it up and, and find out what you can, but I mean, uh disease killed way more people than bullets in this war, as it did, I'm pretty sure most wars before World War II. And we don't think about like what was it like to be an average soldier where you're marching around maybe 10 or 20 miles a day carrying 50 pounds of gear? You're wearing a wool uniform in the summer that you hardly ever, if ever, get to properly wash. You hardly ever get to bathe you're eating you know who knows what in terms of food but it's probably terrible and you know at any given time like half the men are are suffering from from terrible cases of diarrhea and things like this you know and and then you still have to fight every now and then too on top of that i mean and, and this is something that that even affected the higher ups everybody was was susceptible to these sorts of things like for example um, not many people know this, but for significant amounts of the war, Robert E. Lee was suffering from like horrific chronic diarrhea, you know, and doing that while you're marching around in the heat on dirt roads and then, and then fighting battles. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a level of, of suffering, misery, filth, and discomfort that most people who live in a first world country today just have no personal, uh, experience of n- nor, nor do I think they should want to. You know, I've I've never experienced that degree of of filth and discomfort and so on, um. You know, and just reading about it makes me just feel feel gross.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, there's there's just so many things to consider. Like you were saying, it's just you know man, tens of thousands of people marching around and. And then on top of that they were uh a lot of the armies in both the the north and the south weren't exactly the friendliest to local populations especially uh I guess as the war went on.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean you're you're dealing with that, you're dealing with you know all all sorts of of morale problems. You're dealing with just, you know, so many more problems than just battle. And you think about it it's it's pretty bad to like catch a bullet and die in a battle. I think everyone would agree with that, but imagine how much worse it is if you're conscious of it when it's happening that you march off to war and you're and let's say you're not gonna survive the war, but instead of gloriously catching a battle while you're bravely fighting on some you know famous battlefield, you literally just catch some bug out of the drinking water and shit yourself to death. And you're like some 18 year old kid who, who went off to war, um, you know, with all these dreams of glory and patriotism and so on. And like, that's, that's, that's the, that's the dignified, glorious end point of your journey is you eat some contaminated food, you get sneezed on by somebody, or you, you drink some water that is full of cryptosporidia or who knows what. And you basically just crap yourself to death. It's it's,
1: insane to think about and you know whenever you're talking about war it's almost like the soldiers on both sides we could talk about the good guys and bad guys but they're all victims um, oh yeah yeah you no know, doubt yeah. on some level for sure and uh so anyway we want to be respectful of your time we've had you for an hour um so much more i'd like to talk to you about i know you I mentioned mean, we, the we spanish could, <laughs> we, could, we could go we could go a few more minutes if you want and right. if you want to ask a couple cool questions, i I'm got one thing I wanted to talk about because this was always something that I guess made me somewhat sympathetic to the Confederacy is Sherman's March through Georgia and thinking about these Southerners who are living on their farm or doing whatever they're doing. And then the union comes through and absolutely crushes their town and kills all these really innocent people. I I think, I mean, um, and I could see why the family members of those people and just, people living in the South would be like, these people are monsters. They're just coming in here and destroying our towns. And I could see why they would have, uh, why that would make them, you know, if they weren't in favor of secession to begin with, or maybe they weren't slave owners and maybe they didn't care or didn't know, now they want to secede. They don't want to be a part of this. Do you, could you talk a little bit about that Sherman's March and, and what happened there?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, it was with the technology of back then, the the most effective way to to wage warfare on on civilians was not to drop bombs from the sky because you couldn't do that yet, but simply to go through and either confiscate or destroy uh, things that that provided sustenance for civilians and that also arguably could provide support for armies. So, you know, burning towns, confiscating food. Uh, destroying infrastructure, these sorts of things, was was the most effective way to target civilians. And also keep in mind too, at the same time, there's a Union blockade preventing goods from coming in into the South from outside too. So even before Sherman's march, Southern civilians are dealing with massive amounts of of shortages and privation, and you know just like shortages of of even what we would mostly consider like basic necessities, let alone comfort items and that sort of thing. And then. Uh, Sherman goes through Georgia and then is even a little bit worse in South Carolina in terms of how much stuff he destroyed and confiscated and so forth. So, you know, he's not he's not like lining up civilians and machine gunning them and then throwing them in mass graves the way like the Nazis or or the Soviets or somebody would in war. But, you know, it has some of the same effect, not as drastic, of course, but, you know, you're creating homeless refugees and people are malnourished and and starving and they're also getting illnesses and dying of illnesses that they otherwise might not if they were properly nourished and you know I, my my point earlier that the that that I have less sympathy for the confederates i'm I'm particularly talking about like the leaders and the actual confederate government and kind of the the opinion leaders of the south um i still have sympathy for just the random average southern civilian as 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 just like You know, to a large extent, victim, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing in the same way that like I would look at uh, more recently, you know, an average Vietnamese civilian during the Vietnam War or an average, you know, just random Afghanistan, uh, Afghan resident resident, um, you know, during America's war in Afghanistan. It's like. I have some sympathy for them because and, and, and you could understand looking at it from the perspective of the common people. Not from the elites, but the common people who are the ones who are being invaded, and, and having you know their their livelihoods destroyed, and, and potentially you know having some of their family members die, and all this sort of thing. That that they they have a motive for revenge, and they have a hatred that doesn't necessarily have to do primarily with the reason why their leaders wanted the war. So you know it's totally understandable that that some Southerners, by the time you get to Sherman's March, and also what Sheridan did. Uh, in in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia too which is very similar it's totally understandable why there might be a plenty there might be plenty of average southerners who like you know probably most of them would have been pro-slavery anyway just because of the society in which they had been born and raised like 90 percent of them probably would have supported slavery on some level but they may not have been like you know the the so-called fire eaters the the rabid uh uh, pro-slavery extremists but then once you have this army of of people marching into your town to burn it and and destroying your farmhouse and who knows what else they're doing and also you know possibly uh raping some people along the way that that it would make you want to fight and it's not really anything to do with why the war started in the first place so you know during the vietnam war i am sure that a good percentage of the vietnamese who were fighting against the americans were not really communists in the sense of like They probably didn't really even fully understand what communism was and, or if they did, maybe they didn't even, you know, support it that much, but they saw it as these foreigners are coming in and destroying my society and killing my, my friends and my family. And so I'm going to, I'm going to throw my lot in with whoever's resisting them. And if that happens to be Ho Chi Minh and the communists, so be it, you know, they're the ones trying to fight these foreigners off Um, that I'll throw my lot in with them rather than with the with the Vietnamese uh, collaborators who are working with the, these Americans who are dropping napalm on my village and all that. And the same thing I would say about like Afghanistan that, you know, I'm sure that the uh, everyone resisting the United States and Afghanistan are on some level, what I would consider, you know, fairly extreme Muslims, but I'm sure they, that they're not all jihadis, that they're not all like card carrying Al Qaeda members or something like that. I'm sure that a heck of a lot of them, probably the majority, but who knows? Um, Basically see it the same way the Vietnamese did of like, I want these people out, you know, they're, they're marching into my society and destroying stuff and and killing people. Some, some of whom are my kin. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're going to do whatever it takes. It's, it's a, it's a very natural, understandable thing. Um. You know, and and all you have to do is look at something like the original Red Dawn movie and the way a lot of Americans reacted to that. Like, yeah, let's you know fight against those invaders. How dare they come into my town and kill people and you know take over and whatever? It's like, yeah, well, that's that's how anybody feels when they're being invaded and occupied by what they see as a as a outside foreign aggressor. You know, it's sure it's how a lot of a lot of Palestinians feel um, about the Israelis. You know,
0: exactly. And and I was trying to put my put my thumb on the name of that movie red dawn as you were saying that's like yeah wasn't there a movie that they made about exactly this and yeah it, it makes perfect sense and and it and it also just harkens back to what you were saying before about we haven't had since the civil war haven't had wars being fought on american soil and we had the you know we can talk about the the reasons why it happened but they did happen the attack at Pearl Harbor and then the nine 11 attacks and you saw people react the same way. It's yeah, let's go over there. And, and, you know, they did this to us and it's a, it's an affront to our way of life and our country. And so, Hey, we need to go fight back. And it's, uh, that's sort of psychology all it does is just continues this, this vicious cycle of, uh, of violence. And, and it really just, and since we haven't had it in a while now, um, we haven't had but haven't had the 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 outcome we've had attacks but haven't had an actual war and so we don't see the uh destruction that it causes so i think people when it's happening on the other side of the world you know what's going happening in yemen and iraq and afghanistan and syria and palestine it's it's not directly affecting them so they don't see the the absolute horrors of
2: it yeah yeah it, it definitely makes a lot of americans have a very very kind of like Uh, trigger happy view on war like oh yeah let's go to war after all like oh this uh you know oh some some obscure dictator somewhere said something mean about america all right let's go invade their country and blow it up you know um it's very easy to have that that childish attitude towards war when you've you've never had to really understand you know up close and personal what this means that you are going to be um you know slaughtering people most of whom in almost every war in history most of the actual deaths are just going to be random civilians who are in the wrong place um the, the there are relatively few few wars in history in which more actual fighters on both sides die than civilians from one side or the other um the civil war interestingly is is one of those rare exceptions where there actually were fewer civilian deaths than uh soldier deaths but even so in the civil war we're talking um you know, easily tens of thousands of civilian deaths. And that, that doesn't get talked about very much. Yeah.
0: Well, um, slappy, I don't know if you had anything, any other questions?
1: No, I do. I do want to maybe plug another one of your great episodes that you did was you mentioned the Spanish American war and the remember the main. So one thing I wanted to, I apologize for the noise in the background. Um, whenever anarchists, libertarians talk about war and they say, we lied in the war and everything's a conspiracy and everything is, um, you know, not, not what you're seeing is not real. There's always something going on. It always kind of puts up my radar, like, okay, we're all just conspiracy theorists. But then when you really look at it and I knew nothing about the, the main and the, that attack that started the Spanish American war, it's absolutely insane. And everyone should listen to that episode. If you're not familiar with it, which I wasn't, uh, that familiar with it. um, Because that's an incredible story and uh, not what it's taught in school. But um, anyway, just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. This was an awesome
2: conversation. You're very welcome. It it was my pleasure. And um, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, it was. This was I I had a blast doing this. I I learned so much during listening to the, the Not So Civil War series, but then also learned a ton right now. So, you want to go ahead and and plug what you're working on or any any links you want to have provided?
2: Uh, sure. Well, find you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get to my basic uh homepage. Just type in dangeroushistorypodcast.com dot com, and you will get that. And the podcast is of course available at all the usual podcast venues, iTunes, Stitcher, all those sorts of things. And um, you know, you can follow me in the show on on Twitter and Facebook, that kind of stuff. And as far as what I have in the works, um, like I said, that conversation I just recorded with Brett Vinat yesterday will probably be out next week on both of our podcast feeds. And um, I'm working on, have been working on for a long time. This is another one of those things where the research kind of took on a life of its own. Um, I'm going to do a series on Woodrow Wilson, whom I consider uh, the worst, most damaging president in American history, at least up till now. Uh, we'll see what comes in the future, but um So that's in the works. I've already done a lot of research on that. Um, And, you know, I keep thinking, oh, I'm going to start recording episodes of that soon. And then I keep thinking, and then I keep, you know, having to do more research and that sort of thing. Um, I've, I've got one more bonus civil war episode. I'm also working on. That's going to dig into kind of like the, 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 the guns and a little bit on the tactics and that, that kind of side of the war, which I didn't get into in too much detail during the main series of the civil war. Um, and other than that, I got, I got one unusual thing that's um, kind of different that I'm also working on as well, a, a massacre in early colonial American history that most people don't know about that was, um, in this case, not one of those massacres against the natives, which are, you know, oh so common. This is going to be um, a massacre of, of one white tribe against another. So it's a story I'm pretty sure most of my listeners are completely unaware of, but it happens to have taken place maybe uh, 20 minutes from where I live. So I know about it.
1: Oh, wow. So real quick, tell us how we can get access to those bonus episodes.
2: Uh, If you want access to bonus episodes and also access to the first 52 episodes of the show, and also access to ad-free versions of kind of regular episodes as they come out. You can support me on Patreon or you can support me on Subscribestar now too. So for you know people who have issues with Patreon, of course, a lot of people do. Um, that's, that's the alternative I currently have up and running. I've got some other alternatives in the works that'll be coming out down the road for support. But right now, five bucks a month either on Patreon or Subscribestar and you'll get access to all that stuff.
0: Awesome. So we'll have all of these links at mcflugel.com slash one thirty three, So you don't have to just remember one simple link and then you'll get all these links to, uh, to go check all that stuff out. Uh, CJ, I want to thank you again. Again, this was awesome. Um, really appreciate you coming on answering questions and, and talking about this stuff. I think it's really important. And I'm kind of glad that the way the episode flowed with it was that we spent the second half and kind of ended on talking about the horrors of war because, uh, if there's one thing that I, that I would want people to understand out there, it's just that how just unbelievably horrible war is.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. And uh, thanks again for having me on. It's been fun.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that talk with Prof. CJ as much as Slappy and I did. He really is a treasure trove of, of historical information. So again, if you have not checked him out, Check him out at thedangeroushistorypodcast.com, and all of his other links, as we mentioned, will be on the show notes page, mcflugel.com slash 133. As you might have noticed, Slappy Jones isn't here to help me round out the episode, but I'm going to go ahead and do a free market success story, nice little quick one. So memes are all over the place in the libertarian world, and we love to make them, we love to share them, we love to laugh at them and over the over the years i guess it's gotten easier and easier and easier and there's there's ways to to make memes now that are just unbelievably easy uh before you used to have to you know grab a photo and or a picture and and go to some sort of picture editing software and kind of do it manually and then there are websites that that were developed that you could just kind of type in the words and it formatted it and did the font for you. But now there's even free apps that do some pretty complex, uh, uh, editing for you, uh, that would normally require some pretty good Photoshop skills. But now it's, it's, it's so automated and easy that anyone can make a pretty good looking meme pretty quickly and easily without really any any real skill needed so it's just a little little thing that the market has provided us there's no reason that a socialist or fascist government would ever say that oh hey let's let's direct resources to to making memes easier to make Uh, especially since memes are such a great weapon against the state i don't think they necessarily want to be promoting that but that points neither here nor there so that's our little free market success story and once again check out mcflugel.com slash 133 for your uh, all your links and checking out prof cj and on behalf of slappy jones thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week one last thing have you ridden your tractor today
2: tell me my life is about to begin tell me that i'm a hero Promised me all of your violent dreams light up your body with anger. Now, with a sparkly world, it's time to destroy all this evil. Now, will not give a word. Get ready to fight for your freedom. Now, stand up and fight, for you know we are.